0: Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your Friday evening to come hang out and talk some basketball with me. Um, I'm headed into a pretty busy weekend, and I only had gotten to one show this week, so I wanted to set aside some time uh, real quick before I get busy tonight to uh, uh, go over my thoughts of from last night's Laker nugget, uh, Lakers Nuggets game. I went back over the film uh, in an in-depth manner today uh, and I have a bunch of thoughts on a bunch of different things having to do with the Lakers. Then I just want to give a, my quick two cents on the, the NBA All-Star game and all the pushback that they've been receiving. Um, usually when two sides are agreeing to do something, there's kind of like a public push, but then there's obviously a private push as well, and I think I understand where those folks are coming from. Um, but let, let's start with the Lakers and the Nuggets. So, you know, one of my favorite things about last night's game is it was the – the, the embodiment of everything that I've talked about this team being over the course of the last few years. Because, uh, you know, there's a, been this, this big emphasis on how big the Lakers are. You know, they had, they had Dwight Howard, they had JaVale McGee, LeBron's 6'9", 270 pounds. Anthony Davis is this big uh, athletic freak. There was always this talk about how, how big they were. And a lot of people who weren't watching the Lakers very closely would say that that was the reason why they were defending so well. They were just too big for teams. And I actually disagree with that. I, I think their size is a huge problem on the offensive end, particularly with LeBron and Anthony Davis, because they can bully you to get close shots, shots at the rim. You know, Anthony Davis more so as an offensive rebounder, but LeBron as a post-up player. And just the way that that can really cause problems for your defense, especially in a playoff series. However, on the defensive end, I've always said that it wasn't built on their size. It was built on their guards and their wings, and the fact that they were all so dialed in to being in the right spots, to communicating, to rotating, all of the effort and focus stuff. You guys, everyone who's been listening to me for a while knows that I've been beating that drum forever. And, you know, when I was looking back at the film today, their defense really took off when Montrez Harrell uh, was playing center later in the third quarter. Uh, 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 yesterday and you know and Anthony Davis was kind of floating around on the perimeter and and uh, uh, Talon Horton Tucker was getting everything going with his length and his quickness out on the perimeter guarding Jamal Murray taking Jamal Murray out of his core actions bothering him from behind with his length. And then when he would get switched off of Jamal Murray by some sort of pick and roll or other screening action, he would stay engaged in the play, immediately rotate to another man that he needed needed to in the sequence. And there's a lot of like instinctual stuff, people knowing the right, places, the, the, the right places to be at the right times and the way that that can disrupt a really good offense. There's a play on my Twitter feed. If you scroll down and you look uh, at the video clips that I've posted today, there's a play where he starts on Jamal Murray. And then gets caught in a ball screen action with Jokic, which he inevitably has to switch, where he switches and gets up underneath Jokic and pushes him out kind of to where the semicircle was, which leads to a rotation on the back end where he leaves Jokic to sprint out to the corner to contest Jermichael Green, and it leads to an air ball. And, and that's an example of what I'm talking about here. The Laker defense, the, it, it hasn't just been uh, uh talent horn Tucker this season. Contavious Caldwell Pope has been great with that for the last two years. Uh, Alex Caruso has been great with that for the last two years. You know, Avery Bradley was great with that last year. It was always built on just this total team effort and commitment to rotating and covering for each other and being in the right spots at the right time. That's always what it was. Now, don't get me wrong. Having Anthony Davis and LeBron as these super versatile forwards on the front line that can protect the rim and guard on the perimeter is also a huge chunk of what makes that defense so good. But I've always thought that the guards kind of got the short end of the stick in terms of the media and the way that the, the, the Laker defense is portrayed because I, I think they're just as important, if not more important, to the success of that defense. And I think last night was a great example of that. That whole third quarter run was, was sprung by by Talon Horton Tucker and honestly, Montrezl Harrell, who was great. So <clears throat> real quick on Trez, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and if you guys listened to the pod I did with Jason Maples, I talked a lot about this, but I've always said that I thought Montrezl Harrell with the Clippers and a little bit with the Lakers to start this year has been set up to fail because they've been using him as kind of like a, a center that patrols the paint where he's not a great rim protector, not in the sense that you would think of like uh, being head up with guys and being able to disrupt them and change shots. He can block shots if he really gets loaded up in the right spot, if another defender's involved that prevents the 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 offensive player from being really aggressive to the rim. He can really load up and block shots, and he will get blocks that way. But he's never been great as just an overall just rim presence. He's just too small, and, and his instincts aren't that great. But he has strengths. He has legitimate athletic strengths that would make him a great defensive player. He's very quick for a, for a, a big man. He's got really long arms and he plays super hard. He's got a, a great motor, which fits great into what the Lakers are trying to do every single game. And so what you saw, what you saw last night is ironically what turned things around for Trez was the fact that that center that they were using, Jokic, was starting a lot of actions with the ball in his hand. So he wasn't defending a ball handler out on the perimeter as a screening, like defending the screener where he was caught kind of in some sort of weird drop coverage or in between. Instead, a lot of times he was on the ball. So because of that, he opted to ball pressure Jokic and kind of get up underneath him and get into his, his handle a little bit. And it really bothered Jokic. And I think that was a big reason why he had so much success defensively last night. What was he was kind of, by virtue of what the Denver Nuggets were doing, it allowed the Lakers to to play Trez to his strengths. Uh, and then, you know, Jason Maples uh, brought this up a lot in our pod, but he said that, um, you know, it, it's very important for Trez to be aggressive in certain matchups. And a lot of times last night, they would have Michael Porter Jr. playing the four, you know. And so there, at the end of the third quarter, that lineup, they had Jokic at the five and MPJ at the four, They'd have uh Jokic on Anthony Davis, and Trez was just destroying the uh uh the Nuggets, especially in transition when they would get caught in a cross match, or like Michael Porter Jr. would end up on Kyle Kuzma, uh, and all of a sudden he's got Jamal Murray on him or Will Barton on him right under the basket, and he's getting he's getting dunks and deep seals and things along those lines. There's one in transition that he got out in front of Jamal Murray for a dunk, and then there was another one where Uh, he got switched onto Will Barton, just did a a really good side seal and LeBron threw a really nice bounce pass into the right spot and he got another dunk. That's, that's an example of Montrez finding a way to, to, to use his strengths, the things that he's really good at. Because all of these role players, they all have, they all have pros and cons, you know? Because if, if there was a player out there who was playing a role for a team who had no weaknesses, he would be on the floor all the time and he'd be, he'd be a star. He wouldn't be a role player. So when you're dealing with these kinds of guys, these in-betweener type NBA players, they've got downsides. And so you need to structure their role on the team in a way that that, that strengthens what they do. So what I used to talk about all, all the time last year with the Laker guards, everyone was obsessed with the fact that the Lakers didn't have good guards. And I said, who cares? LeBron's your guard on offense. All they need to do is defend. And it turned out all of them could defend. And they didn't need to be you know, uh, super versatile defensive players that could defend all three levels. They just needed to chase people off of the three-point line and funnel them into Anthony Davis. So it worked. The, 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 everything is about you know, taking your player, finding out what he's good at, finding out what he's bad at, and then keeping him in, in a wheelhouse for him where he's going to play well. Uh, you know, same goes for Talon Horton Tucker. I talked a lot about how I wasn't sure if Talon Horton Tucker was going to be usable as a playoff rotation player. And it was never about the offense like he he was incredible offensively last night, particularly attacking closeouts. He did such a great job in situations where the defense was chaotic, either in transition or in the half court, or he would get uh, catch the ball on the wing and either have a, a, a defender who was too slow or no defender at all. One that was closing out on him and he was able to attack and make quick decisions and get into the paint. That, that that's amazing, that's great, but that's not what you would need from Talon Horton Tucker in order for him to play in the playoffs. You needed him to defend at an extremely high level and be entirely focused on that on the ball. Remember, in the Portland game, early in the season, I think it was their second loss of the season, in the Portland game, he got absolutely killed by Gary Trent Jr. because of the fact that he wasn't paying attention on the defensive end of the ball every single possession. For him to have progressed to where he is now, where he's like a regular rotation member, he's actually like their sixth man, it's all about the fact that he is now committed on that end of the ball. Whatever you get offensively from him is great. He had a couple of uh, turnovers. He had one in transition where he got a little crazy and tried to throw a chest pass to LeBron that got stolen. Those are the other things that he's got to be careful of because it's so like decision making is so important in a playoff series. But I mean, from from a month ago, we were all wondering is this kid going to be usable at all in the playoffs? To now, it looks like he's he's a very important part of their defensive backcourt. Uh, that it, it's it's remarkable how much he's progressed in in such a short period of time. All right, I want to pl- I want to pay Kyle Kuzma a compliment. So, you know, Kyle Kuzma has a specific personality about him that would suggest that he'd be a certain type of player, right? Like he's he's very online he's very on social media he's very he behaves kind of young I mean I don't want to call him immature because he's not he's a grown man but he behaves in a way that would would make you think that he's wired in a in a a kind of a young selfish kind of way and to see what's happened in the last couple of months between him signing this extension uh to to make potentially less money than he could have if he left the Lakers to go put up big numbers on a lesser team and then to, after signing that extension, really embrace a minimal offensive role that has him just flying around all over the place, getting offensive rebounds, getting blocks, sprinting back in transition and becoming just a really, really solid, almost veteran esque role player is remarkable to me. Cause like I said, it doesn't, me- it doesn't mesh up with what you think his personality would be like. You know, when you meet people like that, the person who's very online, they're usually the, they're usually the person who's a little self-absorbed a little more worried about what they've got going on. And, and, you know, it's so, it's so cool to see him buy into this concept. And, and quite frankly, like that's going to be the thing that keeps him in the league as a, as a Shane Battier type of wing for, you know, for a really long time is him becoming that guy, Uh the, the him having a 17 year NBA career is going to depend on him being this guy. and, and I and I just like I said I just wanted to pay him a compliment because this is literally uh, a player who took potentially less money to stay on a team where he is in a much smaller role and he's just addicted to playing winning basketball and doing all of these little things that lead to a lot of success on the team level and and, and I and again like I, I me just like just like all of you just like most of the people in in uh, uh, in the Laker fan base. I've been really hard on Kyle Kuzma for a lot of reasons over the years. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that he wasn't embracing those little things. And, and to see him do it now, like, uh, you know, I don't want to say necessarily that we owe him an apology because we, we had reasons to feel the way that we did. But but it's, it's incredible to see his transformation from that guy into literally like the guy who was playing harder than anybody on the court last night. It, it, it was really, really impressive, in my opinion. So about uh, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is Anthony Davis. So I ran a poll last night and I I asked a very simple question. I said, are Anthony Davis's struggles based on the fact that he's not getting enough touches? Or is it based on the fact that that he's just struggling, you know, that he's just in a funk? And the voting came uh, came back at about 88 percent thought that he was just in a funk and that it wasn't related to his touches at all. Now you know I think there's two. Po- I th- I tweeted this last night, and I think it, I think there is some truth to the fact that his touches look different th- than they did last year, and a lot of that has to do with Schroeder in the starting lineup. This is something I talked about uh, in a couple podcasts recently. You know when Schroeder's on the floor with LeBron and Anthony Davis, they destroy teams without a doubt. It is good for the team to have all three of them together. However, having all three of them together in the starting lineup has a couple of unintended consequences. One that I always beat the drum on is that leads LeBron to run half of the second quarter by himself or with four role players rather than with one of the other co-stars. And two, I think it really does potentially uh, have an impact on Anthony Davis's rhythm. Uh, That meaning that in the beginning of the game, the fact that you've got two of these primary ball handler type of players on the floor with Anthony Davis is just leading him to, to getting less touches uh, initially in the game. And one of the things that I, that I preached about all year last year, if you guys remember, <clears throat> is that I thought you know, Lou Williams' over-aggressiveness uh, uh, and Montrez Harrell and, as well might have had something to do with some of the inconsistency from, from Paul George. Now, Paul George is proving me very wrong this year. Uh, But I do I do do think that there is some truth to the basketball, you know, uh, thought process that having too many ball handlers on the floor can cause some issues uh, with rhythm for players. That is true for Anthony Davis. However, he has been really, really bad on the offensive end of the floor. And at, at a certain point, like if you think of the line between the two outcomes, like this is where it's based on his rhythm and this is where he's just not playing well like it's somewhere in the middle like at some point he's got to accept some blame for what's happening here at the end of the day he's he's not dribbling the ball very well at all he's not shooting the ball very well at all and he's not being physically aggressive around the rim almost every shot that he's making this year is something where he's being set up by one of his teammates he's having like one of his worst you know, uh, uh, scoring, individual scoring seasons in terms of his isolation, in terms of what he was doing so great in the bubble, he's, he's having a terrible season in that regard. And I can't entirely blame that on the touches. Now, you, there are a couple of, of people that I follow on Twitter, people that are Laker fans who have been beating this drum all season. And I, and I don't want to undercut that because they are right. Like there is something to be said about the fact that, you know, LeBron is playing basically the same way he played last year. Same amount of touches, same overall control of the game, same everything. And Anthony Davis is getting less touches. So what is the difference? It's Dennis Schroeder. That, that goes without saying. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I don't think you can entirely blame Schroeder because you got to worry about his rhythm. And if Schroeder just entirely gives up his feel for the game and in the initial stretches to, to force feed Anthony Davis – it's very likely that Schroeder will have some struggles, and he has had some struggles for certain stretches of this year, where he hasn't played very well, well offensively, and where he hasn't shot the ball really well. So from that standpoint, I think like, you know, if you're Anthony Davis, you've got to kind of acknowledge the the realities of the situation. Okay, I'm getting less touches, because we have another really, really good ball handler this year, and so as a result of that, my offense has changed. But he also has to look in the mirror and say, However, that's not changing. Schroeder's not coming out of the starting lineup. It's very clear that he wants that. The Lakers have a a vested interest in trying to keep him here and and, and get him to come back uh, uh, after his contract runs out. So I doubt they're going to move him to the bench. So if you're Anthony Davis, you've got to acknowledge the realities of the situation and be like, I have to play better. I don't know if I have to spend extra time in the gym working on my shot. I don't know if I have to just like demand the ball a little bit more from uh maybe from LeBron because LeBron is, you know, less dependent on rhythm and he's someone who's a little bit more capable of, of deferring and then coming back into the game later on uh and being more aggressive later. I don't know what he has to do, but he's got to do something in my, and, and, you know, he had a really, really good defensive stretch to end the third quarter and in the fourth quarter last night. He defended Joel Embiid really well at the end of the fourth quarter in the Philadelphia game. He's had stretches defensively this year where he's been great, but he's also had a uh, like long stretches of the season where he hasn't been great defensively. So at a certain point, like I said, at a certain point, Anthony Davis has to kind of, you know, accept some responsibility uh, for, for what's happening here and, and attempts to make a change. And I try to do something uh, um, uh, to turn things around, uh, but I'm not. I'm not worried about him. Uh, but I mean, let's. This is now. We're now over a quarter of the way through the season, and he's actually slumping worse now than he was to start the season. So I think all I'm saying is, I think it's time for Anthony Davis to uh, to try to figure this thing out. Uh, really quickly on LeBron, um, I said in the uh, the podcast that I did with Tommy on Tuesday, I said that I thought LeBron was the the MVP front runner just by a hair. I, I think it's important to understand that Embiid, Jokic, and or Embiid Kawhi and LeBron, those three are kind of on the same tier, and uh, that that's typical in such a short uh, in such a short uh, uh, sample size because. All They haven't played enough games to really build some gap uh, between each other. But all three teams are right around the same uh, record. They're all within a half game of each other. All three of them are putting up ridiculous numbers. And all three of those teams are at the very top of the league. And so from that standpoint, they absolutely deserve to all be in that tier together. And then I basically said that the reason why I thought LeBron deserved to be on the top over Kawhi had to do with the fact that Kawhi has had somebody on his team playing just as good as him in Paul George, whereas Anthony Davis has kind of faded, and LeBron has had to deal with that really quick, short turnaround. And then I also said that Embiid, who has missed, I believe, five or six games already this season, that his availability is starting to become a differentiating factor, even though his numbers are better than what Kawhi and LeBron have been putting up. Uh, but uh, last night was another great example of that because, you know, uh, uh, you're at home. You're playing against. You're playing against a team that very clearly wants to send a message to you. The Nuggets came in with their hair on fire in that game, especially in that first half, coming in there attempting to 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 knock the Lakers off. The uh, Nuggets had been playing really well this year. They were uh, 11 and four in their previous 15 games, if my math is correct, and they were top 10 in defense. They were ninth in defense in their previous 15 games. And they were top five in offense. They were fourth in offense in their previous 15 games. So the Nuggets came in there, hair on fire, trying to beat the Lakers. Lakers don't have much to play for. They're at home. The game doesn't mean much for them in the standings. Uh, Anthony Davis comes out, and uh, he was was aggressive on the offensive glass early, but he didn't have anything going offensively outside of that. And LeBron did what an MVP does, which is he just refuses to let his team lose. And throughout that game, although – you know uh the role players were amazing in that game but they always are for the really good teams but LeBron throughout that game asserted himself when he needed to uh in order to keep pushing that that uh uh, that winning goal forward and 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 I just think like you know over the course of the season that's going to be part of his case is understanding that the Lakers did did get dealt a pretty shitty hand the really quick turnaround you know like it's very clearly affecting Anthony Davis, but for whatever reason, LeBron's just not letting it affect him. And uh, he's been really, really good on the defensive end. He's, he's incredibly gifted around the rim with his hands in a way that's actually pretty crazy Uh, because, you know, when you're, when you play, when you play basketball in college or really in any competitive level, almost every single coach and ref will tell you to never swipe down on the ball. They always tell you to swipe up. That's why when you see guys practice a defensive slide, they always kind of have that left hand out with their hand up, and then the other hand is up as they kind of slide down the court. The idea is they're they're training you to reach up at the ball because they don't want you to get called for a foul. And LeBron just has this ridiculous ability around the basket to strip guys on the way up, and he does it by reaching down, and he does it without getting foul calls, which is, which is amazing to me. But, I again, I've been – I've been, uh, you know, (laughs) I took a a little bit of, not heat, but a couple of uh, people that I'm friendly with on Twitter were making fun of me yesterday because they said, oh, like, figures LeBron had uh, Jason as LeBron as the MVP again. And, you know, yeah, man, I think he's the best player in the league. And outside of a handful of seasons, like 2015, when he missed uh, several weeks with injury and uh, when his team kind of struggled through the regular season, and 2016, when Steph was just otherworldly, and then 2019, when he was hurt, I do think he was the MVP every year. But it's because I don't think any basketball player impacts winning nearly as much as he does. And and, and more often than not, like I think that 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 needs to be something that is factored in in the MVP race. And and it, it you know if you if you go look at the the uh, the NBA.com stats website and you you scroll down and you look at points per game leaders, there are a lot of guys that are averaging. 25 plus points a game. A lot of them. That, that, that doesn't mean anything in the NBA anymore. You know, Zach Levine averages over 25 points a game. You wouldn't say he's a top 20 player. There, the, that, that part of it is such a small part of what it takes to win basketball games. And so when I'm looking at that, when I'm looking at, at, at what LeBron brings to the table, those are the, that, that's the kind of stuff that I try to see beyond and look at all of his impact. And, and that, that's why I'm going to favor him in a case like this. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when you put him on a roster that has the pieces that they need to contend that all of a sudden he can win a championship or be on the team that's in the top two or three records in the league, that that's literally what it means to impact winning at that level is if you put them in, in, in a, a set of good circumstances, they're going to win. All right. One, uh, this is going to be a shorter show today. There's one last thing I wanted to touch on before we're done. And if any of you guys have any questions, I'll, uh, if you guys have any, I'll take them at the end. <clears throat> um, So I wanted to touch on the all-star game. So important thing to understand about the way that I look at stuff. I, you know, I'm an optimist when it comes to uh, my sport, uh, my sports interests. When I'm rooting for something, I'm an optimist. I'm naturally easygoing in life. And naturally, when I'm looking at at something like that, I'm always going to take a glass half full type of approach. Uh, but when it comes to like society and and like you know the more more intense and and less playful type of topics, I tend to be more of a pessimist and a realist. And and I think that that's just part of the way I'm wired. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with having a different approach to that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, but like, I, I'm always going to look at some of these things with a kind of a harsh reality type, the type of perspective. And, and that's kind of the way I look at this, this all star game thing. Cause, you know, LeBron comes out last night and he says, you know, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I, I'm exhausted. I was looking forward to having a break and, uh, to kind of recalibrate and prepare for the second half of the season. Like, I, I don't want to be there. I, I think this is stupid. And as I've said several times on Twitter, And as I said in the pod with Tommy, like the the reasoning for having an all-star game is literally the exact same reason for having the season. Coming into this season, nobody wanted to play basketball in December. None of the owners wanted to do it. None of the players wanted to do it. Why? Because of the fact that the owners weren't going to make as much money without fans and because the players needed a break from the bubble and because they knew the pandemic was going to make the season less fun. None of them wanted to play. The same thing LeBron was feeling... When he was talking about that All-Star game is the exact same way he was feeling when he was talking about this season in general back in November. That, 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 that was the reality of the situation. But they went forward with the season for a couple of really obvious reasons, a couple of really simple reasons. The players really wanted to keep this current CBA intact, and so they wanted to, uh, to, to, to try to uh, capitalize on as much of the TV contract as they could because they knew if they didn't that the owners would rip up the CBA. And that they didn't want to play 72 games, but they had to in order to fulfill as much of the TV contract as possible. They didn't want to play in December, but they had to because the TV partners were aggressively pressuring them because of the low ratings as a result of them playing during the election coverage and during the heat of the NFL season back in in, uh, uh, August and September and October. Those were the harsh realities of the situation. They knew That if they and then also all of a bunch of people in the players' association were from other countries and really really wanted to play in the Olympics and play for their country, and so they needed to be done in July. So there were all of these reasons to push through with seventy-two games from December to July. That would that would lead to them having kind of a hectic, weird season without fans that would kind of suck with all these restrictions that they inevitably that they had to even tighten further than they did. This was always going to be bad this was never meant to be fun for them. This was work. You know, we all have jobs, but you know, they have a more fun job than most. However, this season became less fun for them as a result of the lack of fans and the lack of the ability to, you know, have fun in these cities that they were traveling to. And that really sucks. And I'm not debating that. I'm, mean, You know, uh, there's no, there's no point in, 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 in trying to, Tell them how to feel about a situation because obviously they have reasons to feel the way they do. All, all I'm saying is that they, they knew what this was when they signed on the dotted line. This season's going to suck. It's going to be 72 games. It's going to run from December to July. None of us want to be doing this, but we're doing it for the CBA. We're doing it for the television contract. We're doing it so that we can get back to normal next year. They had all these reasons why they were doing it. And, and like, if I'm the league and Turner broadcasting comes into the room and sits down with Adam Silver and goes like, Hey, listen, like the all-star game is part of our contract. If you guys do it, it's going to make up, you know, 150 million of the, of our total TV deal or whatever it is. I don't know what the number is, but then Adam Silver calls up uh, uh, Chris Paul and the players association and Michelle Roberts and goes, Hey, listen, like, this t- this All Star Game is going to make up a huge chunk of our overall TV deal. All we got to do is keep the same protocols and fly everybody into Atlanta, have them do a dunk contest, have them do a three point contest, have them do a game, and then fly you out of there. It's going to put a bunch of money in all of our pockets. It's the exact same reasoning for why we're doing this whole season to begin with. Let's go ahead and do it. You know, and and for the you know one of the most common uh, bits of pushback that I've seen is people saying, you know, well. I don't like the idea of putting all of our stars in one place. And I get that in in theory. If, if, if an outbreak took place at the all-star break at the all-star game, that would be the worst possible place for it to happen because a bunch of stars from a bunch of different teams would get it. That that's, that's terrifying, right? But that's the exact same fear that was in play during the bubble. You've got all these players in one spot. If a, if a, if a outbreak happens to take place in there, it's going to infect everybody, blah, 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 blah. But what kept the bubble secure was the protocols. And that's the whole point of trusting them for the purpose of the all-star game. Yes. If COVID happens to get into a player who is at one of those, uh, who's at an event at at, at an all-star weekend, it will be a problem, but there's been one positive COVID test in the last two uh, testing cycles within the NBA strictly because they have great protocols, you know, and people, people really like to, to, to roast the NBA and to talk a bunch of shit about how terrible they are because they're trying to have a season, but they really did go to great lengths to, to, uh, uh, to have great protocols. And, and it's funny because they, they, uh, if you think about what basketball is, like I, I caught COVID playing basketball. I I went to an alumni game at the school that I played in college and they stuck a, a thermometer uh, at my forehead and said, you're good to go. And made me just sign a piece of paper that said I wasn't experiencing symptoms. I'm pretty sure that's where I got it. You know, it, it, you do catch COVID playing basketball, but somehow NBA players aren't catching COVID right now. And it's because of the, the protocols. So for all the, 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 the shit talking about shaking hands at midcourt or shaking hands at the free throw line and all, and all of the people giving the NBA a hard time about some of the cheesy rules, well, underneath the cheesy rules, there were a lot of really smart rules. And they're basically running like a mobile bubble everywhere they go. The team basically exists with, within its own bubble that travels around to all these destinations. And It's working. It is. It's not perfect. It's not as perfect as a real bubble, but it's doing really, really well. And, and the NBA deserves more credit for that because for all the talk about them being a business who just wants to profit and make money, they're at least doing it in less of a dumpster fire fashion than the NFL did, where they, where they just didn't care that people were, all, were getting it all over the place. These NBA players are on really strict protocols and they know it sucks. And they're pushing through. But my thing is like, what, what's the difference it, it, like, as far as it pertains to the all-star game? You know, as long as they obey those protocols, theoretically, nothing's going to happen to the group of guys in there. Even if you had, you know, Obama and Gandhi and every other famous person in the world within that bubble. If they're, if they're behaving according to the protocols, they're going to be fine. All right. Do we have any questions in the comments? Do you, care about the NF- do you care about the NFL? If so, who do you have winning the Super Bowl? I do care about the NFL, but I, I, I'm a very casual fan. I grew up a Cowboys fan because all of my, my family, so my, my dad and mom met in Dallas. All of their brothers and sisters live in Dallas. Um, I used to visit Dallas two or three times a year. And as a family growing up, every year for Thanksgiving, we would uh, travel back to Dallas. My parents both moved to Tucson, Arizona. That's where I live now. Um, but, uh, we would travel back to Dallas every single year. And on Thanksgiving day, we'd watch the Cowboys play and we'd watch the Lions play. Cause my dad was originally from Detroit. Um, but I grew up a Cowboys fan. I've, I've always really, really liked the NFL. I just had a really hard time getting into this season and and that, that there's a lot of reasons behind that. One is the, uh, uh, the Cowboys haven't been very good Two, the thing with the fans and COVID has made it kind of weird for me, but three, and this is, this is the most important, like you know, I'm married now and, you know, I, I, I really invest a lot into my relationship. I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, my wife and I are very happily married is because I invest heavily into that. You know, like when I wake up in the morning and I'm making my plan for the week and I'm planning gym time and I'm planning work because I run my own business and I'm planning all of these things out. I also set aside time for my wife. I have to, because if I don't, I think that sort of thing is what builds all of the scar tissue that can lead to a really bad relationship. And so, um, you know, and it's not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm in my, I'm 29 years old. I'm learning just like everybody else, but so far it's so, it's so far so good as it pertains to that sort of thing. And so I really enjoy doing this. I enjoy recording these podcasts. I enjoy covering the NBA as closely as I can with all of the other responsibilities I have. And, and one of the ways that I do that. Is I've basically told my wife, like, look, if there's a Laker game on, I'm watching it, and but outside of that, I'm going to keep as much time for you as I can. So the old days when I used to wake up on a Sunday and watch football all day, you know, those days are pretty much gone because now I set aside the three nights a week where I'm going to be, you know, very closely watching the Lakers and and uh, and and afterwards being on Twitter, you know, kind of engaging in the conversation and. And doing all of those things, I set that time aside and I save as much of the other time as possible to, to, to be with my wife and for the other social engagements, whether it be my family or her family or our friends and things along those lines. So I think that's probably one of the bigger reasons why I don't follow the NFL more closely than I do is that I'm taking this NBA stuff really serious. And uh, I really, really enjoy doing this when I come on here and talk about the Lakers. Usually I've watched every Laker game twice because I don't like being someone who's talking out of my ass. I try, to, I try to pretend, at least pretend like I know what I'm talking about. So uh, um, that, I think that probably is the bigger reason. Let's see. Any other questions? Nope, that's it. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening in. Like I said, um, uh, I just wanted to hop on for a little bit uh, before we all get busy with our weekends. Uh, but I would imagine I'll be doing something with uh, Tommy early in the week next week. And then uh, uh, my next Laker guest that I'm having on is Vinay. We had a bit of a scheduling conflict uh, last week, but uh, uh, we have three kind of weak Laker games coming up. The, uh, they play the Thunder twice and they play uh, the Detroit Pistons. But after that, there's a lot of really good games and we're going to have a lot of good Laker basketball to go over. But thank you guys, as always, for your support. And uh, I'll have the podcast version of this up shortly. And I will see you next week for another show.